Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called We Can Do Better, Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 22, 2012. Thanks to a person who's all but forgotten in history, this week the world commemorates Holocaust Remembrance Day. The readings this week from the lectionary explain why Christians should be leaders in this vigil. After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers to spread his message to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In his parallel passage, Mark renders the universal scope even more emphatic by writing to all the world and to all creation. Similarly, in Luke's book of Acts, Jesus told his timid followers, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this, in fact, is what happened. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and it ends in Rome. In the lectionary this week, Peter concludes his sermon by proclaiming that in Jesus, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed by God. Acts 3.25, quoting Genesis 22. This global promise was first made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. The story of Jesus, says Luke, anticipates the restoration of all things, which is to say that God knows every name in every nation. Two radical corollaries fall, follow from this robustly global vision. The decentralization of your geography and the reorientation of your politics. First, Christians are geographic, cultural, national, and ethnic egalitarians. For us, there's no geographic center of the world, but only a constellation of points equidistant from the heart of God. Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person, and every place, the gospel does not privilege any nation as exceptional. No one should think they're forgotten, and no one should think they have special favor. Lots has been written about American exceptionalism. In terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural dominance, America is unrivaled, and at least in some sense, exceptional although there's no reason to think that this will last forever. But from a theological or Christian point of view, America is no more exceptional in God's eyes than any other country. While allowing for a natural and wholesome love, even a pride in your own country, geopolitical egalitarianism subverts the claims of ad absolute allegiance to any one nation. The claims of the gospel are absolute and unconditional. The claims of the nation and state 
are relative and conditional. Second, because of this, Christian Global Vision asked me to care as much about any and every country and its people as I do my own. And so Christians grieve the deaths of Iraqis and Congolese as much as Americans. This implies that our politics become reoriented, non-aligned and unpredictable by normal canons. No state or political party can indulge in the self-sacrifice that Jesus demands when he asks his followers to place the interests of others ahead of their own. On Holocaust Remembrance Day, we honor the memory of the six million Jews who were systematically exterminated by the Nazis in at least 35 different countries and also the additional three to four million people whom the Nazis deemed undesirable and inferior enemies of the state. Gays, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, Soviet prisoners of war, Slavic people, the physically and mentally disabled, and political dissidents of every sort. The term genocide has a specific history the word was coined by the eccentric and brilliant Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew who single-handedly thrust the issue of genocide onto the world stage. On October 16, 1950, after 17 long years of Lemkin's tireless labor, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide was finally ratified by the United Nations. The United States the United States signed 36 years later, on February 11, 1986, after 97 nations had long ago ratified the convention. <coughs> when Raphael Lemkin died of a heart attack at the age of 59 on August 28, 1959, he was penniless. But before he died, he broadened the notion of genocide beyond the extermination of six million Jews. He had nearly completed a magisterial analysis of a long list of historical cases and themes of genocide, which as far as I know, still remains unpublished. In other words, he expanded genocide to include the attempted destruction not only of ethnic and religious groups, but of political groups. He thought that the term should also encompass systematic cultural destruction. Yom HaShoah reminds us of other mass murders. A million or more Armenians under the Turks. Two million Cambodians under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Kurds under Saddam Hussein. Muslims, Croats, and ethnic Albanians under the Serbs at least 30 million Chinese under Mao, tens of millions under Soviet atheism, nearly a million ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus by extremist Hutus in Rwanda, and then of course in Darfur by the Janjaweed or devils on horseback supported by Sudan's government. 
The deadliest war of our generation has been the underreported conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, former Zaire. Since the start of conflicts there in 1996, five million people have perished out of a population of 50 million, a staggering 10% of the population. Over half of these deaths occurred since the war ended in July 2003. The overwhelming majority of the victims were civilians. About half were children. Millions more Congolese have fled to neighboring countries as both a cause and a consequence of the war. And hundreds of thousands of women have been raped. In his book, Worse Than War, Genocide, Eliminationism, and the Ongoing Assault on Humanity, Daniel Goldhagen describes how 127 to 175 million people have been eliminated in just the last century. These people came from all regions of the world and from all social, economic, and political groups. The vast majority of them were killed in their own countries by their fellow citizens, by willing and non-coerced murderers, and almost never with any substantial dissent. By Goldhagen's count, mass murder has deeply scarred countries that are home to 4.4 billion people, two-thirds of the world's population. Civilian deaths and injuries outnumber military ones by a factor of nine to one. And so, according to the title of his book, eliminationism is worse than war. No person or people is immune from the horrors of Holocaust, either as a perpetrator or a dissenter. Solzhenitsyn once observed in his Gulag Archipelago that it would be nice if we could neatly divide the world between the insidiously evil and the obviously good. Instead, he once famously wrote, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. There are, for example, good, bad people. A Holocaust survivor once described to me how a young Nazi guard secretly gave him a sandwich. And as he did, tears streamed down the soldier's cheeks. Conversely, there are also bad, good people. In his book, Unspeakable Acts, Ordinary People, the Dynamics of Torture, John Conroy says that we tend to caricature torturers as sadistic monsters. But there's ample evidence that most torturers are normal people, and that most of us could be the barbarians of our dreams as easily as we could be the victim. The Spaniards came to America for gold and glory, but they also came for God to spread the gospel. In a letter to Pope Alexander VI in February 1502, Columbus wrote of his goal in the New World, quote, I hope in our Lord to be able to propagate his holy name and his gospel throughout the universe, end quote. The natives they encountered were deemed pagan and subhuman, 
as their cannibalism and human sacrifices surely proved. Oviedo, a 16th century conquistador and historian of the five-volume work Natural History of the West Indies, describes the solution to the problem of the Indians who did not want to convert. And I quote, God is going to destroy them soon. Satan has now been expelled from the island. His influence has disappeared now that most of the Indians are dead. Who can deny that the use of gunpowder against pagans is the burning of incense to our Lord? Todorov estimates that the Spanish conquest of the Americas killed 70 million people by murder, maltreatment such as slavery, and disease, upwards of 90% of the population. In other words, these good Christians construed the wholesale genocide of bad Native Americans as a form of piety. But genocides don't have to happen. We're not destined to slaughter our neighbor. But when we reduce people to a singular identity, such as Jew or gay, it feeds a sense of fatalism, resignation, and a sense of inevitability about violence. Simplistic labels partition people and civilizations into binary oppositions. They ignore the plural ways that people understand themselves and obscure what Amartya Sen calls our diverse diversities. In particular, Sen objects to the clash of civilizations thesis made popular by Samuel Huntington. No, we should never concede that civilizations have to clash. I pray to move to the place described by the Yale theologian Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. And I end my essay by quoting Volf. The theme of divine self-donation for the enemies and their reception into the eternal communion of God, as God does not abandon the godless to their evil, but give the divine self for them in order to receive them into divine communion through atonement. So also should we, whoever our enemies and whoever we may be. Thus the embrace beyond exclusion, the will to give ourselves to others and to welcome them, to readjust our identities to make space for them, is prior to any judgment about others, except that of identifying them in their humanity. For books this week, I review Ian Brown, The Boy in the Moon, A Father's Journey to Understand His Extraordinary Son. <clears throat> New York, St. Martin's Press, 2009. 293 pages. When Walker Brown was born in 1996, his parents, Ian and Johanna, knew something was wrong. Seven months later, Walker was diagnosed with CFC syndrome, cardiofaciocutaneous syndrome, 
an extraordinarily rare genetic mutation that didn't even have a name until 1906, or a genetic test until 2006. Estimates vary, but as few as 300 people in the world are born with CFC syndrome. The nature and severity of symptoms vary, but as the months unfolded, it became clear that Walker Brown was profoundly disabled. He cried nonstop for hours. He has the signature facial dysmorphia of CFC. He never slept through the night and couldn't talk. Eating difficulties necessitated a feeding tube. Heart and skin irregularities compromised his health. And maybe worst of all, Walker would hit, bite, and scratch himself. Before too long, his medical record was six inches thick. The first geneticist that Ian Brown, his father, met told him that there were only eight other cases in the world. <coughs> he writes in his memoir, Eight. It wasn't possible. Surely we had been blasted out to an unknown galaxy. <coughs> Brown later learned that CFC was caused by a random mutation in three genes. He describes himself as a fairly conventional atheist, and so he understood the implications, and I quote, The scientific definition of evolutionary success, of a successful random mutation, is one that allows the organism to survive and reproduce. Nature alone would not have allowed my son to live. By the judgment of a geneticist, Walker was what she called a deleterious effect of nature. Brown didn't resent the geneticist. What I resented was the idea of my son's life reduced to a typing error in a three billion long chain of letters to one dinky nucleotide. So just what is the meaning of Walker Brown's life? To himself, his family, and society. Ian Brown's memoir tells how he's tried to answer that question. He describes the upheaval in his family and marriage, the sleep deprivation, the physical and emotional exhaustion, financial worries, and so on. He battles the bureaucratism of public schools, hospitals, and government agencies, most of which are staffed by competent and well-meaning people, but which are nevertheless required to standardize one-size-fits-all protocols guaranteed to stymie the many. The Internet made connections with other CFC families possible, and so Brown visits them to trade stories. When Walker turned 11, they faced the agony and necessity of placing him in a group home, where, by the way, he flourished. He says, life with him and life without him. Both were unthinkable. And aggravating it all were the chronic feelings of guilt, shame, and failure that haunt parents of the profoundly disabled.
The Boy in the Moon has won numerous prestigious awards in Canada, where Brown lives. The New York Times named it one of the top five nonfiction books for 2011. Simply put, it blew me away. I can't remember reading a book that's so carefully crafted, so brutally honest, so tenderly written, and so life-affirming. Walker had horribly bad luck in the DNA lottery. But as you learn from his father, he's also the antidote to our many forms of false consciousness. For Walker never tries to be anything but himself. He invites us to love him just as he is, which is about the best thing any human being could ever hope to give, or even, and especially, to receive. The author is Ian Brown. The title of the book, The Boy in the Moon. For film this week, I review a movie called Obsolidia from 2010. George is a lonely librarian who's convinced that, as he says, everything's in decline. He corresponds with end-time authors. In his musty apartment, he collects artifacts of bygone eras. In fact, he's compiling what he calls an encyclopedia of obsolete things. Rotary phones, the typewriter he uses, vinyl records, phone books, and especially the human species itself. He also believes that love is obsolete. That's until he meets Sophie, a film projectionist at a silent movie theater. She calls George's compilation of obsolete things his obsoletia. Together they drive to Death Valley to interview a famous doomsday eccentric that George wants to include in his encyclopedia. And you can guess what the trip does to his theories about love. This delightfully quirky movie is full of nostalgia, whimsy, social commentary, philosophic reflection, and environmental eschatology. So if the end is coming, as it surely is, and all things are headed for oblivion, how should we then live? George and Sophie will show you the way. Obsolidia earned several nominations and awards at the Sundance Film Festival. And finally this week, for Holocaust Remembrance Day, I'd like to share a poem by, that's ascribed to the German pastor Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller lived from 1892 to 1984. He protested Hitler's anti-Semitic measures in person to the Fuhrer, was eventually arrested and then imprisoned at Sachsenhausen in Dachau. There's a poem called First They Came that's been ascribed to Niemöller, although its different versions and exact origins have been debated. The poem describes the passivity of German intellectuals as the Nazis purge group after group of targeted people. 
First they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists, but I was neither, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out for me. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 22, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.